0: Welcome to the ATP Radio Podcast and let me tell you, it has been a hell of a week here in Melbourne, Australian Open. It's good to talk about things happening on the court. There's been plenty of drama, there's been plenty of excitement, there's been good crowds, there's been excellent weather. And we have assembled a crack team to unpack everything that's happened in week number one and get ready for a big week number two. Joining me on the panel... Well, we've got uh, Jill Cravers. Hello, Jill. Hello, how are you? Very nice to be uh, sitting alongside you. We are actually sitting on uh, the new Media Terrace, if you like. There's been some redevelopment here at Melbourne Park uh, over the past couple of years. There's a new building right in the middle of the site. if you've been watching the pictures of, of what Melbourne Park looks like. This beautiful outdoor balcony area. We've got the noise from Garden Square going on in the background because tennis is still happening around us as we are recording this. And we are sat beautifully. It is a lovely, beautiful night in Melbourne. Hello, Chris
1: Bowers. Hello, Peter McCarthy. How are you doing?
0: Uh very well. We have survived the first week. We're going to work our way to the second week. Joining us also here on the podcast. Very excited, just dominating week one on AO Radio and doing a stack of interviews for us, some of which we're going to hear shortly in this podcast. Candy Reid, hello to you.
2: Hello, Peter. It's wonderful to be here. It is. And uh, how have you
0: enjoyed week one of the Australian Open? The well you weather, meant to work with me, so the that's... weather
2: has been a the tennis has been an A star and the commentators have been AAA.
0: Oh, you know how to say all the right things. Look, we're going to unpack everything that's happened in week number one. We'll get to that in a moment. We're also going to hear from, how's this for a lineup? Taro Daniel. We're going to hear from the serve and volley sensation, Maxim Cressy. And we'll also be turning our attention to the doubles. We're going to hear from Tanasi Kokonakis, who's been entertaining the crowds in particular today as we've been recording this podcast alongside Nick Kyrgios. And we'll also speak to a man who's gone all the way here a few years ago, Bruno Suarez. Overall thoughts on week number one, Chris, please.
1: Well, it's been exactly the week that the tournament needed. After all, the off-court drama of Djokovic, will he play, won't he play? There's been plenty of stories this week. I thought the kyrgios Medvedev match on Thursday evening was just sensational. It was obviously built up as, as the popcorn match of the week, but sometimes these matches that you build up to uh, prove a disappointment. Uh, I thought it was a wonderful match. The atmosphere was sensational. There were a handful of points you could put in the most wonderful show reel. And then after Kyrgios lost, he went and uh, teamed up with uh, Tanasi Korkanakis, and uh, they had some wonderful doubles results. Jill?
3: Well, I wanted to just make an overall comment, because I was just talking to you about this earlier today, was how many players, I think, in the draw have stepped up their game, in my opinion. I think there's so many players that are playing absolutely insane, like Monfils, um, who's playing the best I've ever seen him play. I think Alex Dimonor is playing absolutely exceptional. Um, and I think that match against Pablo Andahar, the last one, I think Andahar was even just, like, shocked at, like, I mean, how well he was playing. Um, I think Chilich played absolutely insane. So I just think overall, it's for me, it's hard to kind of pick – Pick one. I think the Berrettini Alcaraz match is one that I was really looking forward to, just because the difference in styles, the contrast of styles, and I know the up-and-comer, Alcaraz. Everyone talking about it, only 18 years old, and how, um, and Berrettini after that match, how he's just like, yeah, I'm so impressed with the teenager. So that one stood out to me as one of the big ones that uh, caught my eye.
0: Well, we'll get more from the team shortly, but talk about a player who's in great form at the moment, Maxime Cressy. The S&V serve and volley specialist getting it done actually caught up with our very own Candy Reed after beating home favourite Chris O'Connell.
2: Maxime, this time last year, you arrived at qualifying 172 in the world. You're now 100 places better and going the right way. What do you put this down to? Uh,
4: I put that <laughs> down to consistency and uh, persistence every day. Uh, it's an ongoing effort to, uh, to go beyond myself and, and improve and... And it's a a long journey, but it's just going to keep going and I'm just going to keep improving and I look forward to what's to come.
2: There's a great story on the ATP Tour website about how when you went to UCLA uh, that you started and you weren't really in the singles lineup and then a few years later, sort of junior year, you were getting to the middle and then by the end you were at the top and now you're beating some of the best players in the world. It's incredible.
4: Yes, I (laughs) I believe it's because I had the the vision uh, from the very beginning that I was going to be a... uh, terrific a terrific player on the tour uh, and uh, I kept believing no matter what no matter how difficult the road uh, the journey got and uh, no I had a lot of people did not believe I could do it I had very few um, fortunate people that did and I, I kept listening to them uh, so I had to uh, isolate some uh, some people and and and, uh, <laughs> and build my environment and my entourage and uh, no I it's very exciting for me, uh, and, and I'm proving all the haters wrong, too.
2: And so the people that believed in you, is there anyone in particular that you sort of owe your success I, to? I've
4: had a couple coaches help me from the very beginning. One of them is coaching me now, and uh, I had uh, my best friend from a childhood friend that always believed in me as well. But now it's, now it's uh, crazy because more and more of the, the ones I didn't believe start to believe, and it's, it's a very... Uh, <laughs> It's an incredible feeling to see, uh, to see everyone changing their mind also.
2: Now you've got such a great game style. I mean, you flash back to sort of the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. to see you serve and volleying. So when did that all start? Were you always someone who sort of went to the net and very flamboyant?
4: Yeah, I was uh, with the French Federation when I was 14 years old. I had injuries, uh, elbow injuries, shoulder injuries, and I couldn't really hit a forehand. So I started to serve and volley because of, of my injury and uh, and I actually loved putting volleys away and I became addicted to that feeling and I never looked back. Never, No one has been able to uh, convince me to play otherwise uh, even though I, I encountered a lot of resistance from a lot of from everyone that uh, it was not going to be eff- effective if I want to go on a professional tour. Even in college uh, I was told that I need to improve my baseline and, and and go less to the net it's not very realistic, but i didn 't listen to any of these voices and i kept I kept telling myself that uh, servant volley will be back, and uh, i'm going to make it happen
2: so what 's the key to servant volley now? because a lot of people say you can't serve and volley because the return's coming too fast, mm-hmm. but you obviously make a mockery of that
4: it's not true <laughs> not true at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I've been told. Uh, I've been told many times that the courts are slower, that the returns are better than before. Uh, that uh, no, I, and I, I believe I'm bringing a new uh, style of serve and volley than uh, than the other guys because I'm tall. I'm, I'm six foot seven, uh, and and the guys before were not as tall. And I believe for a tall guy, it's very efficient. And uh, I think I can inspire many other tall players the, to serve and volley more. And uh, I've seen Nick Kyrgios do it mm-hmm. more against uh, Medvedev, and it's working, so so it's a good play for me.
2: I think you're going to start a trend. Now, you mentioned um, growing up and being born in Paris. Yeah. So when did you decide to represent the United
4: States? I decided uh, at the beginning of my professional career I had to make a choice, and uh, most of my confidence was built in the U.S. when I was 17, and and, and I, was, I sort of identified more with my mom's side, American side, with my mindset, and... and and the way I think. Um, So that's why I made the decision uh, to represent the US. I felt more comfortable representing them. And
2: you've already said uh, you went to UCLA and it seems like that university, both on the men's and women's side, is sort of a hotbed of uh, tennis talent. We've got Marcus Girone came out of there, Mackenzie McDonald. Did that help inspire you?
4: Definitely helped. Uh, These guys my freshman year were already at the top. Uh, Marcus Girone was the volunteer assistant coach. Mackie was number one. Uh, and it definitely gave me uh, inspiration to uh, to go on the tour like them and, 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 and be uh, become uh, as good as them. And uh, no, I definitely, uh, I had lots of players had professional aspirations on that team. And uh, obviously at the beginning, it was tough for me because I didn't have the level and, and, and to compete on the lineup. Uh, but uh, they they gave me motivation to... to to really work on my game and uh, and get there. So I'm, I'm grateful that I was on that team.
2: I think you're definitely getting there. And of course, we saw you in the run up to the Australian Open, getting to the final in Melbourne and losing to Rafa, mm-hmm. who was very complimentary about you. He said, you're very nice and humble and you're gonna go much higher in the rankings. What's it like with someone who's got 20 majors to his name to say that about you?
4: Yeah, it was definitely a special feeling being next to him at the trophy ceremony. Very intimidating uh, to play him at first in the beginning of the match. Uh, but no, I feel very fortunate uh, of uh, a player as renowned as him to complement my game and my, and my character. Uh, but uh, no, I'm going to give him some trouble in the future. <laughs> so, uh, But I, I'm definitely very grateful that uh, they already see my potential and uh, no, I look forward to playing them more.
2: Well, the next person you've got to give trouble to is Daniel Medvedev, your next opponent. How are you going to approach that? He's uh, he's quite a handy player, isn't he? Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. <laughs> a terrific player, amazing. And uh, no, I just got to bring my A game. And uh, I prepare the same way against every opponent. It uh, enables me to stay in my comfort zone. And, uh, and I believe it helps my confidence. And uh, no, I, I, I'm really confident I can give him some trouble and, and I can beat him, so I'm... Um, I look, I look forward to it.
2: And it's something that he hasn't played against, is it, a serve and volleyer. So mm-hmm. I think uh, it could be an interesting matchup. Maxine Cressy, you've been amazing. Congratulations so today. Much. And thank, thank you very much for speaking with us. Yeah, thank you.
0: Well, he talked to Candy at the end there about playing Daniel Medvedev. It is going to be a huge challenge for him, but he's got a unique style. Do you see anything that could trouble Daniel Medvedev in the Cressy game?
2: Oh, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Will anything trouble Daniel Medvedev? I think he got over the Nick Kyrgios hurdle, like uh, Chris mentioned, and that was a huge banana skin, and the fans were just, well, raucous, and he overcame that. I think he'll figure Cressy out, but Cressy has just been outstanding, I think, in the last six months or so. He's come from the Challenger Tour. He's also come from U.S. College, and he's really making a name for himself. He's got so much belief, and maybe he'll take a set off Medvedev, but it's hard to see him beating the world number two.
0: Been a fun tournament for Daniel Medvedev. He's back playing the villain again, Chris.
1: Yeah, I wondered to what extent that was contrived, because he has to... Realise when he's playing Kyrios that he is the away player uh, in, 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 in parlance of team sports. And I actually thought the crowd were very good. Of course, they were behind Kyrios, but they weren't unfair. This is an educated crowd and they appreciate Daniel Medvedev. And I thought Medvedev pushed that a little bit too far at the end. But then I think Medvedev is a very smart player. We know he's into chess. The interviews he gives are really interesting because he clearly takes every question seriously and gives thoughtful answers. And I just wonder whether he is doing exactly what he did at the US Open a couple of years ago by getting the crowd on his back so that he can then tame them again and be the darling by the end of the tournament. Is still your pick for the title, Jill?
3: Uh, yeah, he is. I, well, I, I feel like when I pick someone, I have to back them the whole way. I can't just all of a sudden start changing my mind, <laughs> I think, even though that's easy to do with all the with all the guys that are playing so well. And I know I left out a few names, but I didn't want to leave anyone because I think they're all playing great, the Canadians, of course, as well. But, yes, I'm still going to back him. I agree with Chris. I think he's a very smart player. I think what impresses me about Medvedev is – how all this stuff can happen in the middle of a match, and yet he somehow is able to block it out in the moment and still be able to compete the way he competes. And then you kind of see maybe when he gives when he's answering the questions post-match, you get an insight into maybe the frustration that he might have felt during the match, but he never gives it away during the match. He somehow is able to stay super focused, which to me that I find that extremely impressive, that he's able to just play that well and stay and keep his composure throughout the whole time. Yeah, and
1: this is something that I think all youngsters can learn from. There's a real lesson in the way Medvedev plays, and that is, when a point is gone, it's gone. You can't do anything about it. The amount of players at all levels of tennis who end up wrecking their chances because they find that there's a point that they've maybe wrecked or done their, you know, haven't played their best, or at least it, let
3: a few points go by, let a or points go
1: by, yeah. and it rankles. Yeah. And he's actually brilliant at saying it's gone can't do anything about it, focus on the next one. And it's easy said than done, but he does it so well.
2: I do think that Medvedev a few years ago probably would have blown up in that situation. I think he's matured massively. And also after a, a few of those questions where he was quite serious and obviously quite upset with the crowd... Um, after speaking with Jim Courier, he totally lightened up, didn't he? It was sort of like a, a huge smile was on his face and he was joking around. So I think he's able to switch it on and off. And he obviously was taking it very seriously. But then you see the lighter side of Daniel Medvedev and he's very able to cope with all that pressure.
0: Rafael Nadal, anyone going for Rafael Nadal? Anyone? Anyone? No,
2: I've, I've
1: commented on a couple of his matches. And I actually think that there is... Something about Nadal that's not quite right. I think he's not hitting his serves anything like the way he needs to. Every now and again, they're good. The fact that, that he had to go to a 16-14 tie-break against Adrian Manorino, uh, and, and it was an odd one. He, his first serve deserted him in that tie-break, and he made one or two errors once he was through that tie break. It was easy for him. But I don't think Nadal is playing well enough. And I think somewhere, someone will find him out. It may not be Shapovalov, but it will be somebody before the tournament finishes. Can so I'm just... going to
2: beg to differ, sorry, quick, just quickly, because I've been looking at the speed of the serve for Rafa. On average, last year, 183 first serve. Second serve, 155 kilometres an hour. This year, at the Australian Open, 198 kilometres an hour on the first serve. 170 kilometers an hour on the second and he wasn't broken up ahead of the match with Manorino so I think he's serving really well and I think uh, maybe this could be second Australian Open title. How many first serves is he getting in
1: there? I think his percentages are down.
2: I
3: feel like the situation might be different this year too I'm not sure compared to last year but I know a lot of the players today the players this year are saying the courts are faster and the ball is flying through the air a lot faster too so I think the balls maybe it's a factor I'm not sure um, but I, I definitely, I mean, I agree with Candy. I, I don't think I'd rule Nadal out. I mean, I don't feel like you can ever rule Nadal out, um, especially going for that 21st slam. I mean, you know, that's on his mind too, just to get that little edge there.
5: Well,
0: I think now he's got uh, Denis Shapovalov. We might talk about Shapovalov a little bit later on, but it's an interesting uh, draw, the uh, top half of the men's singles draw. Let's talk about some of the other players um, from during the week. Carlos Alcaraz, what a match he played against Matteo Berrettini. Candy. Berrettini said he's unbelievable. Well, certainly he's got more titles and a ranking that uh, Berrettini had at the same time. He is one to watch.
2: Yeah, it was something that Berrettini said in his post-match interview, wasn't it, that at his age, at 18, Berrettini hadn't got an ATP point and now Caraz is sort of on the verge now, really, isn't he, of becoming a really big player. He's uh, looked like he's leaned out a little bit in the off-season. Um, he's hitting the ball harder than ever he's a huge competitor and I think uh, even though on paper he wasn't the favorite to win that match against Berrettini a lot of people were picking him and it really took everything the Italian had to come through that match so Alcaraz it's easy to say he's going to win majors but uh, if if nothing goes wrong it's got to be a certainty.
1: Yes, I mean, I was talking this week with Raven Clarsen, the South African doubles player, who at the time we're recording this is still in the tournament, uh, about developing youngsters. And he sort of, in passing, said, you know, when you see a, uh, a Sinner or an Alcaraz at 15, you just know they're going to the top. And there are some players who just seem to have that greatness from a very early age. Now... A few of them never quite make it the way we expect them to. But nothing Alcaraz has done so far has made me doubt that within two or three years, he will be on the Grand Slam Roll of Honour.
3: I haven't picked to win the French already <laughs> this yeah. year. Well, he had the guns out,
1: <laughs> didn't he? He would decide well, to wear did, the other uh,
3: yeah. singlet
0: rather than uh, the proper shirt. So I he's got a bit of swagger about I him know, too.
3: I know a lot of people are surprised by that pick, but Rafa Nadal won his first girls at 18. So I went with it.
1: 19. It's was his, it 19? Well, I he was 19. It was his 19th birthday the day he won his semi final against Federer.
3: Can't doubt, Chris. You were out by, by a day or two. Yeah. Oh, it's it was okay. 18 and route.
0: Close enough. <laughs> You're yeah, close enough. Hey, um, another player that we should be focusing on, Candy, a little bit in the first week. Andy Murray went toe to toe with Nicholas Bastilashvili, who's played a couple of times, once recently in Sydney. Fell to Taro Daniel. How have you assessed his Australian Open?
2: Um. A difficult one, isn't it? He's working with Jan a new coach. Uh, Jamie Delgado is now with Denis Shapovalov, and that chemistry seems to be working rather well. Um, but I just think Andy was so defensive against Basil and it took him five sets to win, and by the time he played Taro Daniel, he was just exhausted and The way he is, the age he is, the fact he's got a metal hip, he's got to start winning those matches, the first round matches and second round matches a lot easier. Against Basilashvili, he spent an awful lot of time way behind the baseline, chipping the ball back and playing wonderfully defensive play. And we know how mentally strong he is, but physically he's not there. So he's got to start finding a way to be a bit more aggressive.
1: Yeah, echo absolutely what Candy has said. The key to Murray making a success at this comeback is to start winning matches quickly. He's good for one really good match in any tournament, but that's not going to win him a tournament.
0: Let's look at the other side, Taro Daniel, who worked his way through. He lost to Yannick Sinner, but you had the chance to catch up with uh, Taro to find out a little bit more about the man from Japan who eventually lost out to Yannick Sinner. And he started by explaining how his life was one of a globe trotter from an early age.
6: My parents met in New York, and then that's where I was born. And then, But then we moved, you know, really uh, right away to Japan. So I, you know, spent most of my childhood in Japan. I uh, went to elementary school there, started tennis there. And then when I was like 13, my sister was 11, 10, uh, we moved to Spain. And that's where, you know, we started taking tennis more seriously, trying to make it professional and... Uh, Yeah, I lived in Spain for 10 years, and then since then, uh, that was like 2017 when I stopped living in Spain, so I've been kind of all over the world, um, but kind of basing myself in Florida a little bit, and um, yeah, everywhere here and there.
3: So doing most of your tennis in Spain, would you have done most of your tennis on clay? Yeah, yeah, and spin a lot
6: of clay, yeah. Okay, so I'm
3: curious, um, you know, obviously you're great on all surfaces, but do you feel like having that initial start so much on the clay has helped your game overall?
6: Yeah, for sure. You know, I've always had a very kind of a consistent game. Even when I started tennis, I was one of those like kids that hit a lot of lobs and uh, <laughs> just running around and grinding. And so actually, the Spanish tennis fit really well with me. And even when I was practicing in Japan, um, I struggled with, like, the faster Japanese surfaces Mm. playing indoors. And I struggled with that more compared to other kids. But then I really enjoyed playing in higher bouncing surfaces, clay, uh, even normal hard courts.
3: I think that's interesting. Just talk about, like, having to change surfaces and how much the conditions change week in and week out. Like, are there a lot of adjustments as a player that you have to make that you take into consideration? And what exactly does that entail
6: yeah for sure i mean it's compared to other sports it's a lot of adjustments because uh it's not just the surface it's not just the balls it's like also the weather since we're playing outdoors you know it makes a huge difference when the sun's out or when it's raining or when it's when you're playing indoors and then when it's cold when it's hot you know and then that makes the ball travel completely differently And then, yeah, and then the surfaces, you know, like, even if you have the same hard courts, they can bounce completely different, same with clay, like, there are some clay courts that skid a little bit more that's not bouncing, but then you have clays in Spain or, you know, maybe in France that tend to bounce a little bit higher, that are a little bit quicker, so it's a consistent, constant, constant, like, adjustment, really, every week.
3: Hmm. And do you feel like that's basically kind of helped you learn more about your game in particular? Or, or what? How do you feel like you've improved by able to adapting to all those different changes?
6: Yeah. So you know, like I said before, with growing up, I really struggled with quicker surfaces. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's something I've improved a lot on the last two, three years. I won my first challenger on indoor hard courts in Europe. Uh, so that would be. That would have been unimaginable for me, like, six years ago. But well, what five exactly
3: years... did you have to change, would you say? Yeah,
6: well, I'd, I'd say, like, improving the serve okay. first. And then, like, being able to take the ball earlier on the returns. Um, and then, you know, I think be- being better at the first two, three shots of the points. Because mm-hmm. uh, that's, a lot of the points end there. So, being better at those, yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: And how much as a player uh, do you look into, like video and data analysis because that's become such a big thing now Mm -hmm. it's more prominent in the tennis world do you pay attention to that stuff is that something that you like
6: yeah i do i have started that uh you know a few months ago um because that's something i used to really not look at i would really be mm, careful with what type of information i received before i played a match but i think now that i'm more of an adult i'm trying to see what type of information i'm I have around me, and then I choose what to use. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead, before, I would be very selective of what to see. So now I'm more... I work, you know, a little bit with data guys and then see what kind of data I can pull that could benefit me playing a match, Uh, so... Yeah, it's definitely been something that I've been starting to use in the Is last. Is that something week.
3: you do yourself, or do you have help with that? Because it's a lot of information coming in.
6: Yeah, I definitely need uh, help because <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm not I'm not out there like looking on uh, on YouTube and like calculating right. the, the percentage of the first serves or anything like that. I have somebody helping me. But I think I I think a lot of players are doing that uh, yeah, these days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm.
3: I know you've said it's relatively new. You've just been mm. doing it for a couple of months. Is there anything already that has stood out to you that surprised you that you learned?
6: Yeah, I mean, because first, before you start, you know, analyzing other people, you have to analyze yourself, um, and then you have to see, like, oh, has everything that I've been working on court, is that what I need to practice? Um, And then sometimes the data on yourself helps you kind of refine what to do on court, because I mean, the older you get, you need to be more precise with the energy you spend. Every minute, you know, counts, so... Yeah, I think being more precise with practicing and then what to work on myself is definitely a very important thing for me. What mm-hmm. do
3: you feel like you want to work on after seeing all that data? Yeah,
6: well, I think very generally, um, <laughs> I'll say, you know, just definitely improving the serve and, you know, obviously tennis is becoming way more powerful. Uh, so a lot of points are actually finishing in the first three, four shots. That's and, what I
3: read, too. I was actually surprised by that. Are yeah. you surprised by that?
6: Yeah, I was definitely surprised yeah. by it because I feel like my matches definitely go longer with longer rallies. But the, even in these, on those longer rally matches, there are a lot of points that end in two, three shots. Mm. So you do need to become more aggressive and better in those, in those shots and situations.
0: Now, if you want to hear more of that interview from Taro Daniel alongside Jill Cravers for fireside chat sort of style. Check out the podcast channel later this week when the full-length version containing subjects like the Olympics and what he gets up to away from the courts will be available. That is an interview not to be missed. But let's talk about Yannick Sinner, Jill, because uh, he keeps... Oh, you're very excited. <laughs> Alex Dimonor is the next opponent. There's the too time many like, they haven't actually. played. Tell us about how you think Yannick Sinner is playing. He struggled a little bit against Tarot Denny, he wasn't quite dialled in, but once he got going in, in the final set, he was flying along nicely.
3: Yes, he was. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I'm pretty high on his game. I think he is an exceptional player. I know one thing that the guy, the other guys across the board say is that he's probably got the one, one of the heaviest backhands out there as far as rotation and pace on that side. So I think a lot of guys respect that side and, and struggle with that. And I think, and I just think his movement um, on the court, he's so quick around the court. So I mean, that's going to be a battle against Diminor because obviously he's one of the fastest. And the other thing I was going to say is for someone so young, just his demeanor and composure. I mean, you never see him getting flustered, upset. I mean, he just handles a situation so well, which to me is, uh, same with Alcaraz does that as well. But to, to me, which is exceptional for someone so young.
0: He's got the right. You keep
3: wanting to interrupt me. Go ahead. You're. you're, you're I'm done.
0: I <laughs> <laughs> was well, going to do a beautiful segue, but you've ruined it now. You said he's got the right demeanor. Chris, let's talk about Alex Dimonor. <laughs>
2: Oh, hey. He's oh, saying positive segway.
0: vibes only. <laughs> positive vibes only in 2022. Good run at the age of had yeah, COVID, derailed pretty much his season before the Olympics. Had a run of outs. He's been training. We've seen him uh, photos of him training in Spain with his dog running up and down the hills. The dog sort of tapped out a little bit early, but he's keeping things positive. He's playing a good brand of tennis. This is going to be a hell of a match. Have you assessed Dimonor in 2022?
1: Well, first thing I should say is that that dog is so sweet. But, um, everyone talks about his fitness because he's one of the quickest players around the court. But as Leighton Hewitt found out, speed alone will not do it. You've got to actually have some weapons. And what has impressed me about Diminor is that he's added an extra 10, 15, 20% to his serve. He was touching 200 kilometers an hour uh, in his last match. And I thought that was seriously good because I always thought that Diminor was one of these guys who'd run everything down, but you wouldn't win a tournament like that. You'd, You'd grind players down. But he's now actually got attacking weapons. He could really hit through the forehand and the serve will win him some cheap points. So for me... He is a far more complete player. Um, I can see him getting into the second week of a number of majors. Can he get to the semis or finals? Probably not yet, but he's certainly making the right kind of progress because he's now got some genuine power behind that amazing all-court fitness. He's a bit like Hewitt, and we know Hewitt won two majors.
0: Candy, Denis Shapovalov, strong win over Sasha Zverev, who was my pick for the tournament.
2: You and Uh, me both. We both picked Zverev, but uh, but Shapovalov.
0: Let's talk about Dennis for a little while here because he's playing a great brand of tennis right now.
2: Well, I had a little chat with Jamie Delgado just before that match and um, we were talking about how, you know, wonderful Shapovalov is to watch. He's so flamboyant, isn't he? He's got that beautiful one-handed backhand and it's just about containing all the... Magic that is in his hands because uh, if he can unleash it and control it and pick the shot at the right time then he could be a major winner and we all know how tough that is with the cast of characters in men's tennis these days but he did that against Verev he was absolutely superb Zverev was a little bit flat but uh, Dennis played one of the matches perhaps of his life And uh, everything he did just turned to gold, but it was also contained and controlled and he looked like he could repeat it. So a very impressive performance and I think he's really enjoying himself this year. This is heartwarming
1: for me because there are certain players who I think will win majors, like Sinner, like Alcaraz. But I don't think tennis needs them to. I do think tennis needs someone like chapovalov or if it's not chapovalov then someone like Musetti. Tennis thrives off contrasts in styles. And because the way that tennis is taught to youngsters these days is big forehand, big two-handed backhand, yes, learn your volleys, but, you know often the volleys are used to finish off points rather than to really uh, as, as an integral part of the game. Shapovalov has the kind of variety that we've got used to that Federer's had over the years. And for me, it's essential for tennis that someone of his ilk does well. Uh, we, we need the contrast between him and Zverev, him and Alcaraz, him and um, Zinner, you know, in future. But I think if he has re-established himself. And I think that the springboard that he and Ogelia seem have had from the ATP Cup is not to be underestimated. They had that lift at the start of the year in the team environment. And I've seen over the years so many players find something new about themselves when they profit from the team environment.
0: Jill, I'm going to give you a selection. You can choose from the following players and talk about Whichever player you'd okay. like. Felix Azir, I'm, 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 I'm
3: loving all the players.
0: <laughs> Marin Cilic, Stefanos Hitsipas, Taylor Fritz, Gal Monfils. You can pick Ooh. whichever player you want to, or maybe two.
3: Right now, what stands out to me is how well Monfils is playing. I mean, I think, especially ha- having been on the tour for so many years, um, I think he's playing insane tennis. And I mean, if he's on, I mean, the the talent of that guy is just absolutely incredible. I mean, I, th- I feel like, With how talented he is, he he could have won a a slam, if not a, a couple, by now. But I think the way he's come out, especially after maybe not his best year last year, I think he struggled a little bit last year, and the way he started 2022 has been... I mean, everyone's talking about how well he's playing, so that one stands out to me. I mean, it's tough to pick one. Why do you do that to me?
1: One thing about Monfils is that he's 35, which is the age Federer was when he won here in 2017. And Federer went on to win two more majors after that. See,
3: I'm glad you're here because I don't remember stuff like that. (laughs) That's amazing. Taylor Fritz, I'm very
2: excited about Taylor Fritz in 2022. I think he was just starting at the end of 21 to show what he's got. He's had a lot of belief in the past, but hasn't really backed it up. Um, he's got Paul Anakin one of many in his camp and I just think that he's got uh, the belief but also the play Uh, he's got a huge serve he's a little bit quicker and more athletic now and I think he is going to be a major contender in 2022 and he loves the
3: heat by the way
2: and he loves he loves the
3: heat he's not bothered by it at all so I think that's a that's an asset Yeah. yeah
2: so he's used to it
1: Chris pick a remaining player I mean, I'm keeping an eye on Tsitsipas because I'm not quite sure how healthy he is. And also, I think that if he's going to win a major, his first one will be at Roland Garros. But you can't rule him out. And, uh, you know, he's in the same half of the draw as Medvedev. So we could have a repeat of last year's semi-final between Medvedev and Tsitsipas. But I don't know. I mean, I, I suspect that it's going to be a Medvedev... Nadal or Medvedev-Shapovalov final. Right.
0: But I'll take the others then, because Felix azraeli Sim and Marin Cilic are playing one another. I've been very impressed with the way that Marin Cilic is going about his tennis, and if he's able to beat Felix, he's going to be more than a handful for uh, for Medvedev. It's going to be an interesting match, and the matches keep on getting tougher, but Felix azraeli he just needs that breakthrough. You talked about what uh, the Canadians were able to do during the ATP Cup and the confidence they can take from that, he's got to be able to carry it forward. And this is the match that really he should be going in his favourite uh, too. So we'll see how that one plays out. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. We moved from the singles to the doubles. Been a bit happening. Boys, has have been a bit happening in the doubles draw. It's been all stations. Obviously, Kokanaka, Sekiros, we will get to them a bit later, but they knocked out the top seeds, Mektic and Pavic. The top seeds in the W. Were you on that match, Candy,
2: for us? Um, I was watching it from afar. And uh, I was watching, actually, the match between Beha and Escobar. That was one that Chris Bowers put me in charge of. Um, but the match uh, against Matek, Pavic and uh, Metkic was just unbelievable. I mean, to beat the top seeds and those guys finish off last year, well... They're the best team in doubles right now and uh, Kyrgios and Kokonakis were just insatiable and using the crowd, weren't they, to full effect. And then they followed that up with a wonderful win over Behar and Escobar and uh, it wasn't easy, but three sets and they did the job. And again, it's uh, just down to the crowd and the enjoyment and they're just loving showing their stuff. See, I was aware of that match
1: because I was sitting at the opposite end of the ground. I was just grabbing a bite to eat and I could hear this noise and thought, where's this coming from? Oh, that's the kyrgios Kokonakis match. And it was a constant accompaniment. It just kept on going to the point where I thought, what is going on there? Is there something remarkable? And in a way, this is exactly what doubles needs. They're not going to be like the Bryans, who were the sort of flag carriers for doubles for so many years, because they're not going to play that many tournaments. But if they can have an occasional cameo role, especially here in Australia, they will boost the standing of doubles so much. And I think that added something so special, not because of the quality of the doubles. I mean, the the match against uh, Escobar and Bejar wasn't massively high quality. It's just a. The energy and the enthusiasm around it and that's what tennis needs at this level and that's absolutely the shot in the arm that doubles needs.
2: And these guys are so different because they're both drinking uh, fizzy drinks during the match they both got earrings on. There was one time where Nick Kyrgios completely whiffed a volley right on top of the net, and they're both giggling to each other, and they're just doing things on their own uh, hymn sheet. Uh, but it seems to be working, and, it, and it's fun. They're getting the crowd really involved in doubles, so that's really great, and they're bringing attention to the doubles draw, which is what all the guys want.
0: Yeah, we've got uh, Puets and Venus and their next uh, opponent's the sixth seed. That's going to be fun. I suggest it will be on the... Uh the Kia Arena, the new sunken show court here at Melbourne Park. Well, they've
1: made the Kia Arena their own. I mean, they yep. played their last two matches there. It's a 5,000-seater, so, you know, anyone with a ground pass can go in there, can fill the place. It makes it their own little fortress. I think I think it's brilliant. and In a way, I don't think they're going to win the title, but as far as they go, the, you know, the, the further they go, the better it'll be for, for tennis as a sport as well as for the tournament.
0: Can we build a case for Bolelli and Funini, Chris, to reach the final here yeah, they've had success. The Italians in they the They have.
1: They've played together for a long time. Also, I suspect it's probably Fanini's last hope because I think he's now faded as a singles player. I don't think we're going to see him at the top as a singles player for much longer. But um, he's got that good uh, partnership. They've played. They played for Davis, uh, Italy, in Davis Cup many years ago. Um, they know each other's games very well. They had a very good win against uh, Jamie Murray and Bruno Suarez from a set down. And yes. They have the
2: talent and the attitude when they're switched on. They've got to take on the Rajiv Ram and Joe Salisbury, who after Mekic and Pavic are out, are the top seeds left in the draw. Mm, and,
1: the and the defending champions.
2: And the defending champions. They're playing awfully well. And it's a great doubles chemistry, isn't it, between those two? One of the longer-standing partnerships in the circus that is doubles.
0: Assuming they get through their... Aussie opponents in uh, the third round, of course, Candy, the second just seed. Gronius and Zabias, they're through to the quarterfinals. They'll take on Piers and Polasek. That's going to be an interesting uh, matchup. that one, as we get to the business end of the doubles. Well,
1: Piers and Polasek were incredibly impressive against Kravitz and Meats, who are back together again. Um, Andy Meese, this time last year, had a knee problem. It needed surgery. He was out for five or six months. And uh, he and Kravitz decided to play with different partners. Kravitz had got a partnership with Harir Tikau, who was in his final year. They qualified for the ATP finals uh, in uh, Turin. And uh, Mies played with a handful of other partners, but they're back together now. I think they're a better pair, Kravitz and Mies, but they were absolutely taken to the cleaners by Piers and Palaszek. And if they can keep that level up, then they can be contenders throughout the year.
0: We've talked about Tanasi Kokonakis and Nick Kyrgios. They've knocked out the number one seeds. They had a good win moving through to the quarterfinals. He'll building some nice momentum. The crowd's right behind them as well. And, uh, well, Kokonakis in particular. Let's hear from Tanasi because he's enjoying his time on court after a difficult period off
7: it. I've had a lot of setbacks in my career, so I've almost too many to kind of list off. But Mono was tough, and it's, it's not what I needed.
0: This 21-year-old has been through a battle.
7: With Mono, you hear a lot of stories about chronic fatigue, and all of a sudden, I couldn't really breathe. For me, kind of remembering where I was and when I was healthy and how I could play, those are the kind of things that uh, kept me going.
6: The young Australian, Tanasi Kokonakis, but what a statement that is, and listen to the reception. Wonderful. Quite outstanding. Just brilliant, this guy's a
7: warrior. I had a few tough moments, I don't know if I could single out one. Having a surgery at 19 was tricky, especially because I had, I guess, the best year of my career, just broke into the top 100, was one of the youngest players, I think, in the top 100.
0: This 21-year-old has been through a battle, and it's been his body that has been his biggest adversary. He has had so many injuries, it's all been there, and yet he says the passion still burns, and he's come back for another try.
7: At the end of 2019, obviously, obviously just came back on tour and was playing some good tennis. And then all of a sudden I couldn't really breathe and I was my coaches were looking at me as if I hadn't done any fitness for the whole offseason. I'm like, no, I trust guys, I have I've been I've been doing the work, I've been putting in the work, but yeah, got a few blood tests done and uh had glandular fever, so mono was tough and it's, it's not what I needed. I had to take my time, be patient. I remember feeling super weak and super fatigued at the start. I lost about 12-13 kilos which was very tricky. But luckily my mum's cooking helped and I ended up eating everything I could find so I got my energy back pretty quick. I had to build my way up back from that and uh used pretty much all of 2020 getting myself fit. back from Mono is different. It's tricky because you think you might be quite right, but you don't actually know. With injuries when you come back, you you feel no pain and and you feel yourself progressing on court. That's usually a sign where you can kind of come back and and give give the tour a shot, but with Mono you hear a lot of stories about chronic fatigue if you come back too early and push it too early. So that was one thing I was very uh, mindful of. Coming back on tour for me, it was uh, it was about just getting my match fitness and match rhythm back. I've missed obviously a lot of time with my injuries. Get back in the swing of things, get back in the rhythm and, and play a lot of matches, it's a, it's a big adjustment for me, kind of being ready to play week in, week out. Just trying to stay healthy and be competitive. Oh, and says, just wait a second. We're not quite done. Mentally is obviously, uh, it, it's... It's the tricky one. That's what's probably taken the biggest toll. For me, kind of remembering where I was and when I was healthy and how I could play. Those are the kind of things that uh, kept me going. um, And those are the things that I'm kind of constantly working towards to get back to that shape. And It's been a long road back and I'm still trying to get back to, to my high, but I think I've shown glimpses of it and it's about me staying consistent. He's
6: done it. The roar says it all. Kokonakis gets the job done
7: learned a lot of lessons from that, um, kind of what it takes, a little bit of perseverance, and maybe it hasn't helped my tennis, but I think it's helped me a little bit as a person kind of understand a few things. Um, having empathy for a lot of people because you don't know what they're going through as well as far as injuries or mental, and it's maybe hindered my career a lot, but uh, it's, I think it's helped me grow as a person going forward, so I think I've learned a lot of lessons from it. What can you expect from me in the future? Hopefully, uh, a good ranking. Um, a guy who's pretty happy and positive on court brings good energy and uh, trying to have no regrets when I look back on. There's a lot of things I could have done better, a couple of tough breaks, but a lot of things that I could have done better for sure. So just kind of finishing my career and, uh, and getting what I can out of it. And yeah, hopefully, some good results and, and someone that people in the crowd like watching.
5: You're
2: listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com. So
0: another man who's come through a recent period of bad luck with injuries is the Brazilian doubles player Bruno Suarez, who has some good memories here along with his partner Jamie Murray.
5: To be honest, me and Jamie, I feel like we're playing better than we are than we were last year, which is good to start the year with, with this feel. Uh, Jamie had an amazing preseason my pre-season was a little bit off because I got sick, but like I said, tennis-wise, I'm feeling really good. I think the moment I get my, you know, my, my fitness better, you know, get back on track, I think could be a very good year for us.
2: Well, let's take you back because you're talking about your fitness, and I know you took some time off at the beginning of the year, but also last year, it was a painful experience. So could you talk us through, you're going to the Tokyo Olympics, Yeah. you're in the plane, do you mind recounting this again?
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah I, for, last year was, was incredible. I had a lot of bad experiences honestly it was it was a very unlucky year for me uh it started we started with an injury in miami uh and then on my way to tokyo on the second flight houston tokyo long story short because it's a long story i started feeling some pain in my abs crazy pain out of nowhere and you know arriving in tokyo almost collapsing and went to find out i had uh, appendicitis so Next day, I was in the hospital getting surgery out of Olympics, out of the whole summer swing. One month off, going back into the uh, U.S. Open, I had shingles. I had a stretch fracture in my ribs and managed to play finals there, which was, I don't know how, extremely lucky. And, you know, to be honest, without, with, with all that I had last year, just extremely happy that I survived and ended up having a, a good year with Jamie. So to to be honest, this year I'm just you know hoping to be healthy.
2: That is unbelievable. <laughs> After the appendicitis surgery, I read that you really had to come back very very slowly indeed.
5: Yeah, it's a slow process uh, coming back. It's not it's not a tough recovery. You just basically gotta sit and wait. There's nothing you can do because, I mean, it's on the abs. You can't really do legs or or arm because everything you know gets the abs. So I had to sit for three and a half weeks, pretty much almost four. And then I mean once you come back after not doing anything for one month you can go straight away into you know four hours practice so you got to take it easy but I think we managed well that wasn't really counting on a week later to get shingles and then a stress fracture <laughs> but I survived What are the chances yeah. in
2: your career which has spanned 20 years 35 yeah. titles have you ever experienced a few run of months like that
5: No nothing honestly I've been very lucky on my career with with everything I, I've never skipped tournaments. I've never missed a slam since I started playing doubles. I think this is my fifth, fifth slam in a row. Uh, I was injured once in my life. It was, a, it was a long injury, two years. But other than that, I, I never really got hurt or anything. So I think they all waited for last year to come all together. <laughs> so hopefully it was all this year and nothing's going to is going to happen this year.
2: If we can turn your attention to your lovely family, um, you've got two children. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if your wife and children are here with you this
5: week. No, no, no one's here. I thought about bringing them, but unfortunately, tickets are super expensive this year. I think there's not many, not many options, not many flights coming here. So it's everything quite expensive. And honestly, I, I, I got sick. It wasn't COVID. I got sick before coming here. So I said, listen, bringing the kids, it's not that easy. It's a lot of work. It's amazing to have them. but It's a lot of work. I wasn't feeling very fit. So I said, you know what, I better go there, rest and try to get back on track.
2: Right, little Noah and Maya. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, Noah, I've seen pictures of you sort of having a boys trip. You've just been yeah. to a tournament. How was that for him?
5: Ah, that was, for me, it was amazing. Hopefully for him as well. For me, it was the best trip of my life. I yeah. took him to the US Open with me uh, right, right after having, having appendix. Uh, I took him with me because I said, you know, I'm not feeling great. I haven't played in one month. I need some positive energy and nothing better than, you know, having my kid with me. So uh, we went one week to Miami to practice two weeks of the Open, just me, him and the coach. And it was the best trip of my life. It was amazing. And uh, for him, I think it was a special moment as well.
2: So how is that traveling for him when you're practicing? And obviously after and before matches, you're trying to take care of yourself. You're getting ready for your matches. You're tired afterwards. Does he just hang out?
5: He's very—he's a very good boy. Very nice. I uh, On my way there, uh, in during the first week of practice, I was talking to him like he was part of the team. So I said, listen, I'm working. I'm playing. But you got to help me because you're part of the team. And he took that role very serious. So he was on court getting balls, helping on the warm-up. And then before the match, he was there with us. You know, and just, you know, playing around and, and doing warm-ups with us actually was, was quite nice. And for me, I think it's... It brings such a good energy to us. Mm-hmm. It's such a positive, relaxed, you know, kids mindset, you know. And, and for me, yeah. it was actually good because during the match, he was sitting with my coach and he was so quiet and he was on, he was on his iPad. He was not even really looking <laughs> at the match. And, you know, so many tough moments that I look at him and so relaxed there, you know, chilling, just enjoying life. And I'm like, okay, that's what you need now. Relax. It's all good, you know, and feed from this, from this good, good energy from him. And it was, it was amazing. And what
2: about Maya? We can't forget Maya. Is she sporty?
5: She is getting into it. She's very energetic, way more than than Noah, actually. She's she's all over the place, so much energy, and and it's so nice now because she's three and a half and is starting to understand everything that's going on. She's actually starting to hit a few balls, get her racket before she should never touch a racket. So she's playing a bit more, and and actually in the end of last year, I asked her, I said, do you want to start... Uh, tennis like Noah uh, together with him and he said yeah I want to do it so I think when we go back now uh, we're going to take her to tennis and hopefully she likes it she's really into uh, ballet that's how yes, you call it. ballet dancing ballet. yeah ballet dancing she really is like likes that she's been doing it for a year almost and uh, hopefully she can also play some tennis
2: she's going to get some good length and ab
5: strength yes she's going to be she's strong actually she's quite a strong girl and if she can take that to the tennis court, it's going to be very helpful.
2: That is wonderful to hear. Bruno Suarez, I wish you good health in 2022. Thank and you. Success on the tennis Thank
5: court. you very much. Thanks for having me.
0: So Bruno Suarez talking with Candy Reed. the importance of getting it right off the court. Obviously, as you get older and you get closer to retirement, Jill, you start thinking about things off the court and preparing yourself for a life outside of tennis. How important is it to be thinking about that while you're still playing?
3: I think he's starting to understand what's in, important for him um, as he continues on the later years of his career. and um, But to me, he, he still wants to play. He looks like he's still having, having fun. And that's always a tough decision, I think, as a player to come to that realization of when you want to retire. It's never easy. Um, but I think he's already putting some things in place for that preparation.
1: Can I put a word in here for the Australian tennis authorities? Because actually they took a decision a few years ago to focus as much on the the person as on the player and they've had a couple of players who they've given extra chances to because they brought the right attitude in one thinks of John Millman in the men Storm Sanders in the women uh, not necessarily the most um, highly talented or the players who are likely to go the furthest but who actually are rewarded because they have the right attitude and I actually hope that there is a a sort of development in tennis where people are realising that it's not just about producing top-level players. It's about producing top-level players who are also decent human beings that go with it because ultimately players have to be human beings after their playing career and not everybody makes it.
2: Well, I think that's a case in point for someone like Felix auger asim isn't it? Um, who Freddie Fontaine, the coach, said, you know, he wouldn't work with somebody who wasn't a decent human being because there's so much time spent off-court travelling. You need to be able to get on with somebody really well. And he mentioned that Felix has so many outside interests. They can talk about politics and uh, anything other than sports. So it makes it a lot more interesting and wide-ranging, and I think it also gives you uh, a lot better of a career after tennis because we all know that, I mean, tennis... It could end tomorrow, couldn't it, if you have a bad knee injury or something goes wrong. So you've got to have uh, outside influences that are, are strong.
1: And all tennis parents should note that.
0: Final words. We're about to wrap up the podcast. So in, well, the time we're recording, seven days' time, we'll be knowing uh, who our champion's going to be. But maybe a bit of a prediction. Is it going to be Medvedev and question mark for the final You've already given yours earlier well, on the podcast. I said at the start right? of
1: the tournament that it would be one of four players, and three of them are still standing, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, and Nadal. I thought Zverev yes. might as well. You never know, somebody might come through the top half of the draw, Shapovalov or Berrettini, but I suspect it will still be one of those three.
0: No, I'm going to nail you to an actual prediction, Chris.
1: Nadal against Medvedev in the final, Medvedev yes. winning it.
0: Okay. Uh, Candy?
2: Uh, I'm definitely going to go with Medvedev, and I'm going to go. He's going to play Rafa in the final, and I'm going to go out on a limb. Rafa's going to win his second Australian Open title. Jill, I might go Medvedev
3: Montfiez just to make it different. Oh, oh,
0: oh, oh. Yes, I want to make it
3: different, and but I'm going to go Medvedev because I back because I picked him. <laughs> just in case uh, Peter, what are
0: you backing? I'm going to go with Medvedev. I think we're all agreed that Medvedev's is going to just come through that. Uh, section of the draw, the bottom half of the draw and I'm going to be like you a bit uh, Jill, yeah, I'm, gonna go I'm going different. to say Berrettini.
3: I thought you might pick that one, yeah
0: Yeah, just for something a little bit different
1: something Now different, that Zverev's yeah. out, and the, I picked him last Italian week Italian and your uh, heritage <laughs>
0: Yes, excellent. Uh, thank you Candy for being a part of the podcast.
2: It's wonderful to be here.
0: And for doing all the interviews. Thank you Chris We'll to pick this up again next week. Look forward to it Jill, thank you as always. I
2: love
3: it. It's always a pleasure.
0: Well, that's it for the podcast for this week. You can check out our podcast channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, and the ATP website, which is atptour.com. We can also find all the latest scores and video content from around Melbourne Park. We'll be back in our next podcast to round up the events from Australian Open 2022. But in the meantime, check out the podcast channel for exclusive interview content, including our recent chats with German Andreas Mies, Ecuadorian Emilio Gomez and Australian coach and data analyst Craig O'Shaughnessy. I'm Peter Mercado. My thanks to Jill Kravis, Chris Bowers and Candy Reid. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, enjoy the tennis.